Hi folks, this is Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, today is Thursday, August the 23rd, 2012, and this is episode 966. Today we're going to take a look at a subject we covered a lot in the past. We haven't really talked about it for a long time. It's time to talk about it again, and it's setting up a bug-out location, uh, finding a bug-out location, transforming it into either a well-set-up BOL or a homestead or a deer lease that you actually use as a BOL or whatever you want it to be. And uh, this was precipitated by some questions that I was asked at the Permaculture Design Course about what was termed as a slow bug-out or a long-term bug-out. Uh, I'll tell you more about that when we get into the main subject today, but I think you'll enjoy it. And those of you that live in the city but want a place just outside of um, all-hell metropolis for yourself and don't think it's in the cards for you, I think you might really enjoy today's show. Uh, kind of a slow, methodical way to develop a homestead. All right, before I get into that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure the show's for you here five days a week, Monday through Friday. Sponsor of the day, number one today, Ready Made Resources. What more can you ask for from a company than for their name to say who they are, what they do, and then they actually do it? That's what Ready Made Resources will do for you. All the resources you could ever need, ready made, ready to go, point, click, and buy, and they'll show up on time, really quick, really fast, with great service and great pricing. And I mean everything. You want solar? Got it. You want wind? Got it. You want gardening stuff? Got it. You want long-term food storage? Got it. You want to be able to produce your own long-term food storage with canning and dehydrating and stuff like that? Got it. Think of it. Say, I want it. Go there. I bet you'll figure out they got it. You can have it too. Ready made, ready to go. ReadyMadeResources.com. Next up today, Sawtooth Tactical. Hey, if you know, all of us have, especially the guys in this group, have kind of a little bit of that tactical bug in us. We like cool stuff that's also practical, like Magpul magazines, which are the best magazines I've ever found for my AR. Go to Sawtooth Tactical. You'll find them there. How about just something kind of cool? How about the awesome... Big, huge, do-it-all titanium spork survival tool. You'll find that there, too. How about the toughest tactical gear you could possibly find? SOE tactical gear. You'll find that there, too. And a lot of other stuff. Veteran-owned, veteran-operated, and it's called Sawtooth because they're in the Sawtooth Wilderness of Idaho. So they're putting much of their gear to the test in a harsh environment to make sure that it's right for you. Check them out today at SawtoothTactical.com. Uh, remember, both ready-made resources and Sawtooth Tactical do have special programs for MSB members. Full details are in your member support brigade area if you are a member of the support brigade. More on that in just a second. Next up, though, check out tspcopper.com. Uh, we have some really cool stuff there. Coins about the survival podcast, the real truth about money, Ron and Rand Paul. We have a beekeeper's coin. We have a Republic of Texas coin. We have a Second Amendment coin. And it goes on and on. There's about 34 patterns. They're very affordable. They are AOCS barter currency. They're all fine, pure 999 copper. And they're a great way to spread messages and do so affordably in a tire tube. But the most expensive thing we have, 20 coins, 34 bucks. If you buy in bulk, you buy multiple quantities or things like that, you get discounts. All member support brigade members get 10% off all copper at tspcopper.com. Check it out today. Next up, I want to remind you, please come to Hickory, North Carolina if you're anywhere in the area. I'd love to meet you. Uh, I will be speaking 
Friday and Saturday, the 14th and 15th of September. And uh, let me give you the times real quick. Friday, I will be speaking and answering questions from 11.30 to 1300. That's 11.30 a.m. to 1 o'clock p.m. for you civilian types. And on Saturday from 9.30 a.m. to 11 a.m., I will be speaking again. Uh, on Friday, I will be speaking about bug-out bags and putting one together. On Saturday, I will be giving the 12 planks of modern survivalism speech, something I think most people are always pretty inspired by by the end of and have a new, fresh perspective of things, even if you've heard it before on the air. Saturday morning, there will be some sort of an early meetup. I'm working that out now, and we'll try to set up some after-hours stuff. Uh, when I was in uh, Texas, I kind of you know, spent some time with family after hours because family's there. North Carolina, Dorothy and I will be making ourselves available to you guys as much as we possibly can. May sneak away in the middle of the day uh, each day for a nap at the hotel and come back and wrap things up and then do something after hours. Uh, certainly want to do something on Friday evening. I think that'll be the best evening because the events close early, and maybe I can scare up some of the uh, the uh, vendors to come on out with us. Maybe at least Jeff the Berkey guy. I have a big. I haven't confirmed with him, but I have kind of a sneaking suspicion he'll be there. Uh, all right, uh, that has everything wrapped up except MSB. You guys know about MSB. I talk about it every day. If you'd like to join, please do. If you want more uh, information on Members Brigade, go to the survivalpodcast.com. Click on Members. Remember, military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, uh, and first responders. Email me before you join with service discount in the subject line. Tell me who you are and what you're doing or who you are and what you did if your prior service. I'll spend you, send you a discount code to thank you for your service. All right, that wraps it up. So let's get into today's main subject. So here's how this kind of came up. I was doing this presentation uh, that I actually had planned to do, the bug out bag presentation I'll be doing in North Carolina. And Ben and I talked about it, and it was like it's too much granular detail for people. Uh, that, well, let's get them thinking short-term disasters because permaculturists often think long-term, and they need to understand these short-term disasters can knock you kind of off your horse slow you down, so let's talk about how we could be prepared for that. So we just had kind of a, a discussion where I would go through certain things and then ask them what they thought. And toward the end, one of the, and you know, it was like we'd been going for like 90 minutes and it was time to wrap up. And the guy said, well, what about a long-term bug out? And I said, be a little more specific. And he's like, if you have a place and, you know, you only can put a few thousand dollars a year into it, it doesn't have a house yet or anything, you know, what do you do first? And all I'm like, I can tell people want to get out of here, so let's take that to the fireside. Well, even as I... You know, tried to get out of there. People kept asking me about stuff. I gave away a whole bunch of gear, and people were asking me how it worked and all. I finally got down to the fire. That took another half hour. I guess the guy that asked the question was beat. You know, they, I'd been out there three or four days. They'd been out there for a week and a half at that point, sleeping in tents and, and living kind of a primitive lifestyle. You start to get tired. And I decided he wanted to go hit the sack, but he asked somebody else to explain it to me a little bit better. And it was pretty much what I just said. You know, what, what do I do first? If I just have this raw piece of land, and and I realized as I answered the question as best I could, you know, especially through a proxy, not being able to get more information, the very way that I would answer this question has changed a lot over four years. Uh, having actually purchased the property before I knew half of what I know now, uh, making that a bug out location long before I ever started doing the show. And I think that's something that people need to understand is that the property that we spend most of our time at now that was always designed as if shit hits the fan, we'll go there was purchased about six years before I did episode one of the survival podcast. And it was purchased with the concept of things can go wrong. We need a place to go. And this is a low cost place that can provide most of our needs. If we have stuff stored up, we can go there. It was a true, Bug out location slash vacation home. That, that's what it was bought for. And uh, now it's kind of turned into a homestead. And 
at the time that I did that, you know, it was easy to get a bank loan on a second house. The house was very, very affordable. Our house payment is less than most people have for a car payment. Um, I was making good money, so it was an easy thing for us to do. But even with that, if that were still the case, like a lot of things have changed now. Like I would do things entirely different. But what I want to answer the question today from the angle of, though, is not even having that ability. Like, first, the person who just says, look, buying a place with a house on it already has water, electricity, all of that stuff, um, and having an extra house and having to have a mortgage and all, can't do it. I can't pull it off. It's not in the cards for me. Um, you know, I can scrape up maybe $20,000 or maybe I can borrow 10 and scrape up 10 and, and have 20 and I can go out and buy four to eight acres with that. It's going to be raw land. It may or may not have even the potential for utility access, but it's certainly probably not going to be there when I move in. You know, you start looking at things like, okay, let's say I did that and now I say I want to put a house on the place. And let's say I, I can be, I can be really modest with, with my house. Let's say I can go out and I can get a loan and I can buy a modular home, a small one. Uh, for fifty thousand dollars, and they're out there. I wouldn't want one, but you know you were willing to do that. So now you're look at twenty, you're at seventy, right? Well, seventy, you're into the point where you probably could have bought a better place already set up, because you still need a well. So that's three thousand to seven thousand to nine thousand, depending on your you know what's in the ground and how deep it has to go. Uh, you're going to need a septic system, so you're looking at you know maybe two thousand for a basic to up to five thousand for an anaerobic, maybe more depending on what's in the ground, where you're at, and what's required. Now you're looking at permitting, the county's coming over your shoulder, uh, and then you know you need to put stuff there. And by the time you're done with it, if you had the money to just do it that way, well, hell, you would just buy a place that's already built, a cabin, a house, uh, what have you. So let's say we don't have that blue sky budget. And, and we're, we, you know, for those who don't know, a blue sky budget is like a salesperson term. Like when I would go in to consult with somebody on hardware or test equipment or whatever, and I'd say what I would start out with is let's just take let's take money off the table. Well, let's blue sky budget this. Let me understand exactly what you would want this to be like if you had no budget concerns at all. And then let's back the most important components of that into your budget. That's actually a great way to design many different things, not just a budget or a purchasing agreement or a house or anything. But, you know, what would you do if you could do anything you want? And now let's go with what's in reason out of that, what's most important. So let's say you just don't have that. But you can scrape up some money and you can buy some land or you can inherit some land or, or whatever. But you can get your hands on four, five, six acres, you know. And I would say, like, that's the kind of number you need to be looking for. Like an acre of woodland, to me, just, it, it, it's, or an acre in a desert or an acre anywhere, just doesn't seem like enough if you're going to take the approach I'm going to give you today. Because the cost is going to be high per acre at one acre and low per acre at four or five. You're probably going to get a better deal. I've seen, you know, a single acre selling for as much as three or four acres of very, very similar property. Generally, the one acre pieces, though, are on places that are designed to be developed. So they're in, you know, kind of rural subdivision environments and, and things like that. Or they're, you know, they have easy road access and they have commercial potential and all. All of these things drive up the per acre cost. But when you start looking at four or five acres, generally speaking, you can find land for anywhere between two and $7,000 an acre. And that's a big swing. And I know that's a big swing. And where you live in the country is going to have a lot to do with that. But that's what I'm talking about today is one way or another figuring out how whether it's old timber land that's being sold off cheap because it's just been cut, whether it's you know some land that has really rough access, but one way or another you can get your hand uh, hands on a few acres or more, so three to ten, 
right? Then what do we what do we do, and how do we make a decision about where that land is? I want to start out with distance from your permanent residence. Years ago, when I bought my property, I thought that you know being where I'm at, which is like six hours away, was optimal. I could drive there in a day. I could get there in two days um, if things are bad and I have to be really creative about how I get there. Uh, so it's one day at most uh, overnight. If you absolutely freaking had to walk, if everything really broke down and you had to hump it, you know, you can you could go 300 miles in 30 days pretty easily. And I got to tell you, I wasn't really thinking that way, but it was within the realm of possibility. It, you know, and if you could get three quarters of the way there, you were you you could you know wrap it up in a week. Uh, it, it, you know, there were all these these things that made this five hour distance, five to six hour distance, and it could be under five if I'm alone, and if I have to do p stops for a woman, then it's closer to six. Um, but that range seemed like it made a lot of sense. The biggest city near me, really, of any size, was Little Rock. And if it had problems, that would be one thing. But those problems spilling over just didn't seem very likely. Whereas problems spilling like over into just east of Dallas or just west of Fort Worth seemed a lot more likely because there's so many more people there. There's like 1 million people in the Little Rock Metroplex and 6.6 million in Dallas-Fort Worth. And I wanted to be the hell away from those 6 million people. And I had some very kind of scary thoughts of what a complete breakdown would look like. And as I've examined history and I've examined the results of breakdowns over the years, I've actually become less frightened by them, not just because I'm more prepared, but because I have a better idea of what to expect. And the concept of the roving hordes and everybody's going to be out doing all this stuff and all, there's no gas, there's no power, everything's gone, but yet these people have all the resources to go ahead and do this shit. It just doesn't make sense because if there's enough that they can do it, then there's enough to hold things a lot more together. And looking at Greece, looking at Argentina, looking at the Soviet Union, even looking at Weimar Germany, looking at the Balkan Wars, looking at all these things over the years has taught me that the only thing you really need to do is extract your ass from the high-density population center. That's really to get out just enough to not be in the center of the shit. So to me, I think that if you live already in the suburbs, so let's say you work in like a metro area, and that's like a 30-minute drive in. And a lot of people are in that. That's kind of like the sweet spot for the suburbs. Odds are, if you even went another 30 minutes out, you get into quite rural situations. And if you go 60 minutes out from that 30-minute beltway, unless there's another major metroplex. So Dallas is a classic example. I guess Minneapolis, St. Paul would be another. If you went, you know, if you go due uh, due west of Dallas, you end up in the middle of Fort Worth. And then you go another 30 minutes, you're still like in the beltway, the suburban beltway for Fort Worth. So you have to take this, you know, and it might guide you in what direction to leave. So if there's another major city in one direction and not in another, then you might want to gravitate toward that, you know, if it's, it's to the west, it's a big city, uh, you know, a big city comparable to where you're at. And to the east, there's nothing for, you know, four or five hours, then looking to the east makes more sense. Or looking to the southeast or the northeast makes more sense than looking toward that other metropolis. But I, I actually want to encourage people to start like reining in that long distance bug out location into more like the 30 minute to an hour to two hours. And, and I'll tell you why. You will spend a lot more time there. You will be able to go out on any weekend you want. If you are an hour or two away from your, your bug out homestead location, whatever you want to call it, you can get in the car any Saturday morning. 
You can drive out there, and if you let, leave at eight, you know seven o'clock in the morning, you can be there at eight. You could work a full day, eight to five, be home by six, and even if you add two hours to that, so you go a two-hour location. Well, I can be up by seven. I can work till I can get there by nine. I can work till four or five o'clock and be home by seven o'clock. In the summertime, with the long days, it's still light out, you know, and that's something you could do a couple times a month through your summers and things like that, or whatever you have time. With an hour. A lot of people, if you do it right, I mean, it's something that you could you could even go spend a, a night at, like, so you could leave after work on Friday once you have it developed a little bit, and go out and spend the night there Friday, get up and start experiencing what it's like to be out there, and start realizing where your holes are. So I, I want people to start kind of pulling that in some. And does that mean three hours is bad? No, it just means it's going to create a different dynamic. And I'm telling you, when you get into the five-hour range, you get into the range of things like whenever you leave, if you have animals, somebody has to take care of them, right? It's 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 a pain in the ass to take them with you a lot of times. If you have one dog that does good and he obeys and things, and then it's great to be taking him out there. In fact, he's an asset out there. But you have to be thinking about these things. Uh, you're going at least overnight, if not two days overnight, whenever you go that far out. That involves things like who's going to look after things back at home. It's just more complicated than knowing even if you do an overnighter, you can be back early the next day. It changes the dynamic a lot. It also is a lot more practical from an actual bug out scenario. If there's something that requires you to leave and it's not the end of the world as we know it, let's say that um, you get into a bad way financially. You really do. And you're going to have to walk your house. You've done everything you can It's just not in the cards. You're going to have to walk your house. And you've developed this little homestead, let's say, an hour or less away. And your hope is to find another job because life is going on in your community. And you don't want to be that far away from family or whatever. You can literally bug out as an individual and you still have the range capability to get in there. You know, Hopefully you can find a little town somewhere near there. Even if you have to scale your life way, way back. You know, you're living in a little structure or something we'll talk about in a minute. You could still go, you know, into a coffee shop that has internet access and look for jobs and make some phone calls on a cell phone and things like that until you can get yourself back into working. And maybe you got a long commute, but eventually then you can get yourself back into whatever you want for your day-to-day life if living remote is not your long-term goal. If living remote is your long-term goal, you're still closer to everything that, that you've already built community to, so those people, family, and resources are still there, even when you've kind of totally extracted yourself. And if you extract yourself to that distance and you decide you want to go back, and trust me, it happens, then you can go back much easier than being six, six hours away. So, so I, I went a long time on distance, but I think it's where people get the most tripped up, and they're so worried about because you read books like, you know, the, uh, you know, survivors and stuff like that, and James Rawls's books and all, and they're they're great fan fiction, but they're just not very reasonable in what's actually likely to happen. Even in a total breakdown, the concepts are more for theatrical fiction and like prepper porn than they are for reality. The next thing we have to look at when I'm looking at a piece of land is when I'm thinking about what I'm going to do with it long term, what climate am I in? And I really break, and there's more, there's tons of microclimates, subclimates, grow zones, you know, as far as, you know, zone eight versus zone four and what have you. But I really break the United States into four primary climates. Warm slash hot temperate and cool temperate, which means we get rain and we get significant rainfall over evaporation for at least a portion of the year, and it's either a hot climate or a cool climate. I would classify Arkansas, 
all of eastern Texas, Florida, Georgia, the Carolinas, all of that area, the southeast, is warm slash hot temperate. As you move up, you go from kind of hot to warm to cool. And then I would also classify other areas in the United States as either warm or cool desert. And it's up to you whether it's desert or it's really kind of temperate. And it's, there's, there's all these balances in between. But it's either going to be hot and dry, cool and dry, right? Or hot and wet or cool and wet. And that's most of our country. And it has a huge effect on what we can do from an off-grid standpoint if we're going to go off-grid. Or what we need to do to go off-grid is very, very different. When I was in uh, Vermont, for example, Ben has no air conditioner. Most people don't have air conditioners. If they do, they air condition a room. On a really hot day, you close the door to, or, you know, sequester off the living room, kick the AC on during the hottest part of the day. By the time it's evening, you shut it off, you open the windows, you get a breeze through, and you're happy. Yeah, try that in Dallas. I mean, there's people literally in these modern homes that aren't designed with the, with, with the concept of not having air conditioning. Might people that have died in blackouts from heat. It's, and it's just not a way you want to live. So I've got to take the consideration of climate in into what's important to me. If I'm in a northern uh, temperate climate, it's probably the easiest climate to live in. I've got a long enough growing season to grow food. I've got good soil conditions. I've got lots of rain to fill ponds and rain uh, water catchment. I can heat with wood. There's plenty of wood available. If I have a few acres, I can probably cut wood off my own property every year and never deplete my forest and get a quarter or two of wood, and I can, I can handle that. If I'm only using it seasonally, and te- you know, like a, a bug-out location, like a camping location and stuff like that, you know, then I can get by with a half a quart, a quarter, a quart of wood. You know, I, you're talking about less than a pickup truck load that I can even pick up and buy in the interim so I get some seasoned wood in there for the first two seasons. So the, the, the considerations are very, very different. If I'm going to be up in these northern climates, you know, doing a timber frame home like Ben has, and his is way beyond what you would think of for, you know, a temporary residence. It's, it's a beautiful place, you know. Um, whereas that's just not going to be very practical in the south and southeast. You're gonna you're gonna be just literally sweating your brains out, and it's almost like you have to start looking at going below ground. So, like one good resource might be Mike Ayler's book on underground housing. Uh, I'll put a link to that in today's show notes. Looking at things like earth ships, earth bag construction, any type of underground structure uh, is more practical in the summer. Or I got to start looking at bringing in utilities. Right, I got to start looking at it because I can run light bulbs. Right and TV sets and DVD players and a satellite receiver. If I want to go that far and have that much luxury, I can run that shit off solar. And it's not even that much solar to do it, especially if it's not all on all the time. If I just want it to be there when I need it, I can do that. You, there is no solar system today that I know of that can run an air conditioner in the south and keep the inside of your home comfortable. So you start start looking at how did people do this in the past. And one was with these large, huge, thick wooden frame homes, these plantation-style homes with lots of windows. But if you have the money to build that, then we're probably not having this this like very primitive layer discussion, right? So long-term, maybe that's the kind of structure you can build. There is ways to design wood housing that is conducive to southern living. And it's still hot, right? Just flat out, it's still hot. The only real way to get very comfortable conditions in these humid, hot areas. The 
the dry hot areas, we can pull a little bit more rabbit out of our hat with ventilation and things like that and dry heat and what have you. As long as we're not talking, you know, the ridiculous heat of the Phoenix area where it's 115 degrees. People tell me that's a dry heat. I'm like, it's dry in my freaking oven too. So these are some things to think about. Utility access. Um, for a lot of the people doing this with this kind of low tech approach, utility access is absolutely meaningless for the first couple of years. Because you're, you know, putting a little shack in or a little underground home or whatever. But if you're ever going to live there long term, you need to think about this. And again, it's easier to go off grid in certain climates. Cool is easy to fix. When it's too cold, I can burn something and produce heat. It's very, very easy. Taking it when it's too hot and making it cool is much more complex. It's much more complex. So that's part of your analysis with utility access. Do you need it or not? How big is the property? I talked about this already, but I'm going to say minimum three acres for what we're talking about today. Um, if you had like a resilient community with people sharing resources and full-on houses and everything, I think an acre is more than enough. If you're you know, in the suburbs and you can get a one-acre lot, I think you've hit the grand slam for day-to-day -day living as long as things don't fall apart. When you're going to go out and kind of rough it and try to use the land and you're using resources off the land for building materials and things like that, and a lot of things I'm going to talk about doing, I think you're really pressing it at even three. I think you're really looking for five to ten, and I think five is enough. I think three you can get by with. I think two maybe if you're really, really like you know super optimal with everything that's out there. You have to make this decision for yourself. But I would be looking in the five acre range. Five acres is a big piece of land, and if most of it's tree, that's a lot of building materials and it's a lot of buffer, which I'll get to in just a second. Uh, the surrounding community. I think a lot of people are so much about I want to get away from it all, and getting away from it all is fine until you need stuff. Especially when times are good or when times are relatively okay or even during a somewhat partial collapse. Um, a partial collapse, the optimal place for me would be within an hour or two of like kind of major areas, but the stay the hell out of there, and within 15, 20 minutes of like areas that get stuff into them. Because those communities are going to band together. They're going to lock together. And if you've built this place up and become part of that community before things get tough, you're not seen as an outsider or at least not so much as somebody that just showed up because things got bad. So I, I really think that you need to look at the surrounding community and is there, is there, is there resources available, trade and commerce and barter? And if you want to live there long term eventually, then is there the potential to kind of become part of something because it gets lonely fast. If you want to be a hermit, this is all irrelevant. Pack up a pack, get a horse and go live out in the wilderness and nobody will ever bother you. You know, so, but I, I think a lot of people find that have that loner lifestyle that try to do it at a young age realize it's not really them. It just sounds, it sounds romantic. It sounds interesting, but it's really not who we are as humans. Um, the ability to appear undisturbed, I think, is important, especially in early phases where you're not living there. If I had it like a perfect layout, I would want about a five acre property and I would want to, in spite of how much I might clear of woodlands, I'd want a lot of woods, at least around the edges, and I'd want to leave at least 20 to 30 feet completely undisturbed in a complete perimeter. Even if I turned the whole thing into pasture, which I probably wouldn't, but if I did, I would want this belt of trees and bushes completely surrounding the property, and I would want like one access point from a road. So I wouldn't want a road on the front and the back of it. I'd want it to back up to 
unusable land or refuge land or anything without a road or anything with without a major road. I mean, there's some trails and stuff back there. You know, a lot of rural areas, there's trails created just by people, you know, driving over and over again with four-wheelers. They'll make a road where there wasn't one. I'm talking about a road that cars use. I don't want it on two sides of the property, uh, if possible. And if I do have it on two sides of the property, I want it like on the corner. Right? I don't want front and back surrounding. And I want all of that so that if somebody drove by that, they would just look like a wooded lot. And that means I'm going to get creative about my entry point. So I'm not going to put a driveway straight through. I'm going to put it like at an angle. And I'm going to probably come off like a 15 to 20 degree angle from the road. And then I'm going to hook it back around and then in. So it's going to make like a big S turn into the property. And that's going to make it look like it's just kind of like a space where things aren't really growing. And I want that to look as seldom used as possible. So I want deciduous trees there or conifers there, and I want that drive to be allowed to let some weeds and stuff grow in it, and I want a lot of ground cover. And uh, that means I, I probably want to plan my visits the best I can when it's not really wet and muddy so that I'm not accentuating the fact that there's something there. If I'm going to put a gate there, and that's a good idea, I'm going to put the gate out of the visibility of the road. So a person comes by that's kind of a little open. It's just like wooded land. Right. If they do find that opening and go down it, they'll get to a gate. I'm going to make it easy to turn around at that gate. I'm going to make it very easy because I I could show up at night and not be able to find my freaking key to the gate or what have you. Um, but I'm also going to put signs there that are very clear that you do not need to be there. And uh, I'm going to be kind of intimidating and threatening with those signs. And that's kind of the way I'm going to set that up because I want as few people on the property as possible and I want the property to look as undisturbed as possible. I'm segueing now into like the most critical things I would build and in the order I would build them. But the perfect segue for that is, is there water on the property already? Because it's the first thing I'm going to put in. First thing I'm going to do is put water on a property. So if there's already a pond, even a little, you know, little, you know, tenth of an acre pond, a little stock tank, it's a huge advantage. It's something I want right away, and at least on some level of it's been done. If I had a tenth of an acre stock tank, I would look at that and go, it's going to get really weedy and nasty and muddy, and especially in the south where the, the fish are going to be able to overwinter of this species. You're going to think I'm crazy, but if I want protein and I want to know what's there, I would go down to the local uh, pet store and I would buy goldfish, plain old ordinary goldfish for like seven cents a fish. I would buy like 400 of those suckers and just throw them in there. Unless it already had like a bluegill bass population. Most of these, you know, when you get down to like less than a tenth of an acre, they're not, if you do get bluegill and bass in there, they're going to stunt out unless they're regularly being harvested. And you can always get a cast net and take care of your goldfish problem. Start feeding them bread for a week and you can start turning them into compost if you don't want to eat them. But it's carp. That's what a goldfish is. It's carp. It's cheap. They'll grow fast. They'll keep the thing clean. They'll keep the mosquitoes down. That's if it's already there and I had no control over it. It's too small to support a more, let's say, substantial fish species. You might even get away with throwing a few ducks on that pond and giving them a little duck house with some kind of, but you're going to deal with a lot of predation. But they're about as self-maintaining as you can get. And if you're out there weekly, you might be able to pull that off. But I wouldn't be surprised if it went south on you with raccoons and things like that. Unless the thing has an island. And you can do some things with some electro fence and a solar panel. And you could probably have a flock of ducks and a population of fish completely self 
maintaining. And the ducks will reproduce and things, and a lot of them will get predated, and that's okay. The population will kind of balance a lot uh, on its own, and that's okay when you're not there. At least there'll be some stock there when you get there. And those are the two easiest things that I know. But ponds are where I'm going to go first. So, you know, I started this with a story about this person that asked what they would do, and they said a few thousand dollars. I'm like, a few thousand dollars will pay for an excavator to come in for a day or two, maybe an excavator and a dozer for two days. You can put a lot of swales in, and you can put a good-sized pond in with that money. And that would be the very first thing I would do unless the land needs to be cleared to do it, and then I would start with clearing the land. And I would probably, if I had to do this, I would probably get out there and yes, I would bring the chainsaw and I would pick certain trees that are good for timber and I would take those down and I would have them stacked somewhere to begin to season it all. But even a lot of the clearing, I would, I would scrape the money and get equipment to do it. It's so much faster, it's so much better, and it's the big thing that needs to be done. And while I had them in there to do that, I could also prepare a home site. Because all I need for a home site in this situation is a flat area big enough to put the structure that I want in. And I can even have very, very quickly uh, possibly uh, something put in for the foundations of like, like let's say a basement, which I think is uh, optimal. It may be on your means initially, but it would be really a great way to do things, especially if you're, the route you're going to go for a structure is like a small prefabricated cabin. You know these things like you see, you know, built out of T T11 or T1 siding, whatever the hell it's called, that look almost like a cabin, uh, like in a Home Depot or Lowe's parking lot. If that's going to be your structure, you're going to use, and it's not a bad way to go. And it does a lot of things for you. Number one, it allows you to make your cabin look pretty much like an abandoned storage shed. Everything that you're going to leave on site can be left downstairs. And if you're creative about the way you do it, you can make it very difficult for somebody to even know there is a downstairs. A hatch in the floor. You know, this isn't something to keep, you know, the government out, you know, an FBI investigator. This isn't a Unabomber shack. This is the, the person that stumbles onto it. They just like they're not really scum that are going to just destroy it because then you've got a problem. They're probably going to you know torch the damn thing or whatever, um, and, and that's a risk with anything like this. But the person that would happen by that's just not really a nice guy, but not really a complete douchebag either. They would like okay if they looked in there and they saw a whole bunch of stuff, they might go grab some of it and leave with it. But if it looked empty, they're like oh this is kind of interesting, and they're going to go on about their way. In other words, the person that's going to steal when it's easy. Uh, you know, just a cheap throw rug on the ground with a, with a, you know, an opening where you can go down into your basement. And this does a lot of things for you. And this is something that a lot of people could do on their own if they brought in equipment to prep the site properly. You could build a basement on cinder block foundation. It's not that expensive. You could do a poor concrete footing on that. You'd want to do it a little bit bigger than the footprint of your structure, your, your cabin, your prefab that you'd have brought in and delivered. And, um, a 10 by 10 cabin like that is 100 square feet. You order one with the higher roof with a loft, and you can have another 50 square feet up above, and now you've got another 100 square feet below, and now you've got 250 square feet where you used to have 100. Right? And that is, if I'm there full time, I can use that loft as sleeping quarters. I can also sleep downstairs when it's hot out because it's cool down there. I can store a lot of food and things down there with, with temperature stability. An optimum situation would be something like I get a hold of some big concrete pipes and that's maybe not even underneath the house directly, but I have an underground structure. Uh, or I, I do the, the shipping container thing where I frame out you know, a large shipping container and I, I keep that underground. The big thing is these underground structures, you want to maximize if you're not living there. 
the capability that a person that came by wouldn't really know what's there. And it's not that hard if you get a little bit creative and if you keep the property gated and you keep a wood buffer, wooded buffer around the property more you open it up and encourage. And one of the things you can do is really encourage like nasty shit to grow in those woods. And the way you do that seems counterintuitive. You actually open it up a little bit. I don't mean with big trees and all. You prune off some limbs and stuff and let a little bit more light into your understory. That encourages stickers and briars and shit like that to grow. And that's what you, you want to think like if somebody's even curious as to what's back there and they're coming from any place other than your, you know, your, your, your access point that you've created for yourself that, you know, once they're in there like a foot or two and they don't really see the opening on the other side, they're just like, this, this sucks, right? And you have to think about leaf fall too. I can show you places that you would look at in summer and you can only, you got about five feet of visibility. And then in, in fall you have 50 feet of visibility. So there's a limit to what these, you know, kind of wooded, Uh, environments can do, but encouraging conifers, right, uh, either on the inside or the outside of your buffer, those conifers keep their, their needles, right, so that can help obstruct vision, anything you can do to make the passerby go, and again, this isn't a person that's out looking for it, right, a person looking for stuff like this, this is a risk that you're going to have whenever you have a remote property, a person looking will find What you want it to be is not easily on the radar. Because a lot of these people that are looking, the way they look is they just drive around and they kind of make mental notes like, oh, something's going on there. Maybe I should check into that. And a lot of the douchebaggery of society does that. And one of the things you can do to help yourself is when you first develop the area, don't put anything there right away that's visible anyway. So that if the douchebag that sees the equipment going in and out thinks I'm going to check up on this, when they come in it looks like you've created a home site, but there's nothing there. And if he comes back in a week and there's still nothing there, he's thinking, okay, they cleared the place. They're going to sell the land or something. And then his, you know, that, and these are all things that we need to be thinking about, but we don't need to let them paralyze us. They're just some things that we can do. But I'm going to want to put ponds, swale structures, some sort of storage facility, ideally underground or well concealed shelter and permanent plantings. These, these are the, this is the critical infrastructure. Everything I'm going to do early on is going to revolve around, again, water, storage, shelter, and permanent plantings. I, I'm not worried about solar yet. I don't have anything to power until I have a shelter. I'm not worried about a garden. Uh, I'm not there to tend it. I, I'm not worried about anything but getting this, this mainstream infrastructure in. Because here's the reality. If I have to go to a place that has those four things for six months, I can survive. I can get by. I might not be happy, but if I have a storage facility, I can store enough food. right? So getting something in ground for storage is critical. In a climate where it freezes, it protects it from freeze. When it, in a climate where it gets you know, god-awful hot, it protects it from heat. In a lot of climates where you have to deal with extremes in both seasons, it prevents those, those, those swings in the seasons from damaging what I have. So those are the critical infrastructure. And if I only have you know, a few thousand dollars a year I can scrape up to do that, again, I'm going to start with the ponds and swale structures. Because they're permanent, they last forever. But I'm going to really try to think about how can I utilize that heavy equipment while it's there. If nothing else, hey, make me a flat spot 20 feet by 20 feet right here. What do I do with the dirt? Spread it out. Whatever. You know, but do it. Push these trees down. Put them into a pile. Uh, you know, or you drop them with a saw and say, okay, pick these up, move them over here, and put the stumps over there. 
But use the, try to bring the equipment in once or twice maximum and get the maximum yield out of it because those guys charge the same when they're digging a ditch as when they're pushing out a flat spot, when they're digging a hole in the ground, or when they're making a pond. They charge for their equipment by the hour. And bring in the biggest, toughest equipment you can get. If you're going to bring a dozer in, bring the biggest dozer in you can get. Bring the biggest excavator in you can get. They can do more faster. And they don't cost that much more per hour. And a lot of the guys that own the equipment to bring it in and use it, they actually like to use their bigger equipment because it can tolerate being beat up a bit more. And additionally, they can work faster with it. So a lot of times the smaller equipment, the mini excavators and things like that, those are for surgical areas where I just can't get the big equipment in or I need to minimize disturbance. If I've got raw land, I probably don't care about either one of those things. If I need access, the, the equipment itself can create the access for itself. And if you're worried about, well, I want that access kind of narrowed down a little bit, when you're done pushing trees, there's plenty of stuff to do that with, right? So the, the equipment can create the access and restrict it on its exit if that's what you want to do. Just be damn sure they're not coming back because then they're going to have to open it up again. But those are some other things to think about. Now, taking this to a higher level, I've, I've kind of covered some of this stuff, but I want to go through it again. I think that when we look in the south, we've got to look to earth-sheltered homes, It's either an earth ship or earth bag home or it's an in-ground home. Heat is my biggest concern. It's so easy to, 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 to warm things. It's, it, it takes a lot more energy to cool. If you think about how much heat is produced by just burning a simple candle, right? Take a candle, light it, hold your hand six inches over it, and, and, and think about how much heat is really coming out of that candle. You know, I've seen small, well-insulated cabins that if you go in there and light four or five candles, the temperature comes up a considerable amount. Not to mention throwing a little, a little coal stove or a little wood cook stove and burning one or two logs. It's so easy to warm the cool, especially where it's not, you know, dangerously cold. It's not long-term, you know, sub-zero stuff. The southern United States, the main thing I'm worried about is heat. And by the way, in an earth-structured home, I get a balance of both heat and cold, so I actually stay warmer when it is cold. So I think that long-term, if you're going to be off-grid, you've got to think that way. If you're going to be on-grid, then what we need is some sort of a retreat structure so we can actually bug out from our own property on our property, if that makes sense. In other words, what I mean is, um, if I'm going to build a site, long-term, I'm going to build a nice site-built home. It would still be great to have this kind of earth structure so I have a place to sleep comfortably in the hot weather if the grid's down. Uh, and all of these little like cabins and shelters and things that we can put in, even if we're eventually going to build something long term, well, what do I have? I have storage. I have something that moderates temperature. I have a place to go if the grid's down, even if I bring the grid in. I have a guest house. I mean, all of these early on structures make sense, even for a long term project where I'm going to be doing greater levels of construction. But I'm going to go earth sheltered in the south. I might do it in the cooler climates in the north, but a lot of times I get into drainage issues there. I get a lot more seepage, ground seepage in, and it's more, it's more humid, and it, the, 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 the earth homes, and there's a lot more problems with radon. So I might think more along the lines of timber frame. High performance building on the long term, uh, in the north. Efficiency, wood, and I think one of the things we need to look at with wooded land is it's okay to cut trees down. And, uh, for instance, Ben on his property up in Vermont, a lot, um, almost all the framing in the timber frame, uh, structure he put in his studio and all the wood that's in the, the, the hardwood flooring, which is done with, uh, beach is all trees that were taken off the property. So you can fell that timber and bring someone in to mill the timber. 
You can do large rough cut with, with chainsaw milling. Uh, and then they have, you know, bandsaw mills that can do a lot of this. And, you know, it's not free. I think that was one of the big things Ben wanted to reiterate to me. It's not free. And in some ways, it can cost as much as going and buying lumber in the store. But now I'm building with beech and hickory and oak and, you know, really great spruce if I have that on the property as opposed to, you know, whitewood. You know, and, and pine and, and low quality cedar. Uh, the, the mass produced timber and lumber today is nowhere near the quality uh, of what you can get from real, you know, hardwood stands. And that doesn't mean I have to take out and cut everything down and clear cut my, my wooded land. But if I'm going to do some gardening and put a house and stuff there, I'm going to open up some of it. If I'm going to put an acre of water on five acres, which is kind of where I would go, I would try to get 20% of the surface area of a property in a surface water if it's at all doable. Sometimes the catchment's not there, the land's not right. But if I'm going to do that, I'm going to open an acre minimum to put the acre of water. If I'm going to open a half acre, the, the amount of timber... If you've got mature trees that comes from a half acre, is is significant. Definitely enough to do the bones and frames of a home. And, but I think that's where you're at. I think that you know you have to decide for yourself what you're willing to tolerate. But once you come far enough south, I think that you're having to put in some type of earthen structure if long term you're going to be off grid. And I think that it makes sense to even put in a small earthen structure so you have that way to retreat and to store things uh, in an off grid mentality even if you eventually bring uh, the the utilities in. Or if you get lucky and find a place where the utilities are there, all you have to do is pay for pay for them to put in you know anything beyond whatever. Most places work like this. There's a pole line. There's an easement. Right, And if you have your house right out at the road, they'll hook you up for almost nothing. County water or city water or what have you, electricity and phone. And then when you say, I want to be 100 feet back, they charge you by the foot for the additional access. And most places, you cannot put the access in yourself. They'll only go so far with it. And they require that their qualified contractors do the work. So it's something to consider. But I don't want to be too close to a road. I really don't. I want that buffer in there, uh, and I'm willing to pay that extra to bring those utilities in. Um, but if you're going to be bringing utilities in, I still think it makes sense to put in these off-grid structures early on. And then, like, here, I'm going to tell the story of what I call the multicolored car today, right? And there's a lot we can learn from the burnout with the multicolored car. When I was in school, there was a whole group of guys, and most of them, we had like four different curriculums you could take in school. You had academic which was basically the same thing as college prep without the foreign language requirement. So you had higher math and all the basic core history and, and literature and stuff like that without a foreign language requirement. True college prep, they required two years of a foreign language because a lot of schools were requiring it at that point. And I think almost almost all of them today are making a kind of a prerequisite that you have a couple years of foreign language uh, and then we had what we call the business curriculum, which was centered on accounting and bookkeeping and business law, and a lot of your mathematical credits came from that. Then we had Votech, and Votech had some of the requirements of both, and then half of the year these students went to the Tech Institute, and they would specialize in automotive or auto body or something, you know, cosmetology, or there was a whole plethora. There's like 20 or 30 different things you could take, electronics, where these kids were, you know, I, I think we need more of that, and some schools are doing it today. Um, and most of these guys that were the multicolored car guys were in the auto body or automotive curriculum, either mechanic or auto body. And they would have this old car, they would find like an old Chevelle or something that was just beat to shit. 
and then it would be rusted, the door would be dented, whatever, and they'd go to a junkyard and they'd find a door for the passenger side door. That door was white and the car used to be green. And it's all faded. They put the white door on the green car. And the hood is screwed up. They eventually find a hood. And then the, the hood is like, the one they find is like in good shape, but it's starting to get service rust, so they sand it down, slap a little Bondo in a few spots, and they primer it. And that's all they can afford to do right now. So they put the hood on it. And then there's the fender on the back side ends up being red. And then the trunk, you know, they had a rust spot through it, so they find a trunk that's metallically in good shape, and, and that trunk is blue. Right, and they have these crappy wheels and tires on it, and they drive it around. You're wondering where the hell this has to do with a bug out location. Well, if you talk to that guy, right, it was always the same conversation. Some of you know people like this, especially those that grew up in the 70s and 80s when everybody wanted to have, especially the gearhead guy wanted a classic 60s or early 70s car, and this was the conversation you'd have. So what's with the car, man? One day when I get some money. Man, I am going to have this thing with Kragers and 60s on the back, 70s on the front. I'm going to lift the back up. I'm going to put a clear coat candy apple red on it with like black racing stripes. And the only thing that would change in this conversation from multicolored guy, multicolored car guy to multicolored car guy was exactly what color and like what the car would look like in the end. Everybody was going to do 60s and 70 tires. Everybody was going to do Krager mags, you know, and then it was what color and what kind of like racing stripe or no stripe. Or all black, man, or chromed out, or whatever. That was it, right? Uh, you know, and they're going to put, you know, soup the motor up and everything. Now, here's the interesting thing about multicolor car guy. Um, there were a lot of them, and I went away in the army for four years, and I came home. And multicolor car guy generally was still driving the same multicolor car, still saying the same thing because he was still broke and no money to fix his multicolor car. So if we buy a property, we don't want to be multicolor car guy. Right, multicolor car guy took the project to a certain level and then stalled. Right, and that level really left him with a crappy car, where all the money he had put into that, he probably could have bought a decent car, and then maybe got a decent job and saved up money and actually built the car he really wanted someday, or even taken the multicolor car, put it in a garage where it would be protected until he had the money. But he's actually driving it around, beating the shit out of it, so he's actually doing more damage. So he's trying to backfill a sand hole. Right, and it just keeps caving in on itself. So just because we have this vision that one day we're going to both put in, you know, a thousand square foot Earth ship or an underground house, and we need the money and the resources and the time to do that, doesn't mean that we should hold back on these basic structures that allow us to use the property today. So we can put in that small earth bag home. We can go out there, you know, once a week for a year and fill bags, and pretty much that thing will get finished at some point, and at least it's there. We can work some windows into it, or we can have the equipment come in and dig us a hole, and and we can put in a piece, you know, a slab of concrete, and we can build out something like that and throw a little cabin on top of it. Don't let that. Eventually, I want this really awesome, kick-ass, 900 square foot off-grid timber frame home get in the way of some small 100 square foot, 200 square foot structures that are usable, so that when you go out to that property, you have stuff there. You have things staged there, and you have relative comfort there. You know, I would look at things like, can I put in a shower, right? You say, well, shower is a complicated suit. You know, you need water and drainage and all. No, you need a, you know, like kind of like a a shower area that's that's concealed and a place to hang, you know, a solar shower water bag. At least you can take a shower now. Um, I do think there's a lot of utility in having an RV that you can take back and forth. I think living it, leaving it there's a huge risk, right? If I'm going to leave an RV permanently 
on a bug out location, I want to somehow make that RV impossible to tow or difficult to tow. So I might take the tires off of it and then, you know, uh, skirt in the bottom of it. So that, and then I might keep them out there. So if I need to move it, I can, but that's going to go down underground somewhere. And that's probably better if it's going to sit a long time anyway. Tires dry rot, they leak out, what have you. They're better off stored in a cool, dry environment out of the sun. Um, so if I'm going to do that, that's how I would do that. I am not a huge fan of RVs after owning one. I would say that I at one time thought the hybrid RV, which is where you've got the RV and the sleeping like things drop down or pop out like tents was a great idea, a great compromise in between a pop-up and a full, in a full-on hardwall RV. I would never do a hybrid RV again after owning one. It's too much trouble. There's too much lack. They already don't have a lot of insulation, but those things really don't have insulation. Uh, the guy that bought it from me, I hope he enjoys it, but I think long-term he'll be like, this is not what we should have purchased. Uh, some other creative ideas that I have and, and just some kind of rules of thumb. Uh, number one, every time you build a structure that has a roof, spend the money Buy a little bit of freaking gutter, get yourself some kind of a reservoir, and put water catchment in. If you put up a tool shed, put water catchment in. If you put up a lean-to to stack wood underneath to keep it dry, put in water catchment. If you put in a little mini cabin, put in water catchment. If you uh, create a little like uh, place for, for some ducks that you're leaving on the site to basically be feral ducks on your own property, uh, and you've got like a little roof thing over it, put in water catchment. Water catchment, water catchment, water catchment. Tank, water catchment. Put the biggest tanks and you can afford. You know, spend the money and go buy, you know, 250-gallon or larger poly tanks uh, from Tractor Supply. You know, basically, you can put in about a 550-gallon poly tank and, you know, agricultural quality, uh, all black, uh, so that you don't end up with stuff growing in it for about $550. So it's about a dollar a gallon. And one or two of those, you know, you're looking at like a thousand gallons uh, of water capability. They're not that heavy, so they're not that hard to move in. In fact, you're, you're kind of better off moving up to like the thousand gallon range. Um, my local tractor supply store, and I'm not, I say tractor supply because it's the place I'm most familiar with that has them, uh, that I've dealt with before. But you, whoever has them, they're going to probably sell for about the same. But you do a thousand gallon tank for about $800. And, uh, I mean, you can, you can push that if you want to. You can go up to, you know, and uh, as you go up, the cost per gallon goes down. But you can go up to like a, um, a, a 2,500 gallon tank. You're going to have to special order that, probably have to, have to have that delivered. That's a fairly large tank, but about 1,500 bucks. Now, that seems like a lot of money, but ask yourself, what is, 2,500 gallons worth of water on site at all times that can be gravity fed, uh, that can be set up with first flush and things like that worth to you. And you don't have to necessarily have a tank with every overhang structure or roof. If you kind of think about things before you do this and you put your house, your, your main structure you're going to live in below your tank, and you can feed water over to your tank. You can feed water from all the other structures if you put them a little higher up. And then I've got gravity feeding 2,500 gallons of water. But even a 1,000 is a lot. And you got to look at, well, how often does it rain? If you live in a climate where it rains a lot, then that tank is not only going to fill and stay filled, but it's going to tolerate a lot of use. So I can get by a lot, a lot of times then, you know, even if I don't have a well with 1,000 gallons. 
especially a viable pond that I'm only using that water for things that really make sense to use that cleaner, uh, easier to access gravity feed water for. So that's, that's something else that I think you really need to look at, uh, as part of your critical infrastructure. I also do, I want to talk about what I call island gardening for landlocked homesteaders. And the reason I say that is because if I said island gardening, it would probably give you like, Pictures of the tropical islands and bananas and big giant birds making sounds and maybe some monkeys or something. Hawaii or the Caribbean. I don't mean that. I mean that the giant brown squirrel, also known as the white-tailed deer, can do a lot of damage to property, especially when it's not being uh, lived on. And that if you're going to have any kind of a garden, even something that's kind of an annual production but doesn't require a lot of maintenance or something like berries or trees or whatever, and as you're getting them established, it's very possible that by the time you come back, every all your work is undone. And there's some things we can do. I mean, one of the great things about a piece of property like this is we're a little less concerned about aesthetics. So we can put in a lot of fencing. And this is an interesting thing about deer. If you put in a four-foot-by-four-foot four fence and it's like... 30 feet by 30 feet square and you put a four foot fence in there and there's like good yummy stuff to eat in there a deer will just look at that fence and go and just jump over it if you put in a fence this like 10 foot by 10 foot and then like inside there is stuff that a deer would want to eat a lot of times they won't go in there the containment freaks them out right or we can take a tree and just put like a circle of fencing around the tree to keep the deer off the tree until it gets above the browse line but what if we could do this completely low tech and make everything better we start thinking like a permaculturist so i'm going to put my pond in so let's say i'm going to put a half acre pond in what if i put a half acre of water in but i put you know two or three or four islands out on that pond and i bring them significantly above the water line so they don't flood out like let's say a foot And I flatten the top of them. So instead of being a big rounded island, it's more of a flat island. And I plant whatever I want into there with a very low-cost solar pump, an old car battery, and a timer. I can set up irrigation straight out of the, straight out of the water into the garden. This isn't going to be heavy, intensive irrigation, but it's going to be enough. And you've got to think about the fact that I've got this, this island sitting in the middle of a lake. That, that island's going to get a lot of you know, passive irrigation in any way. So all I'm doing is keeping the surface area moistened by running, let's say maybe even every other day, running a few gallons of water onto, uh, let's say, permanent plantings like berries, trees, bushes, and vines out on those islands. I could even conceivably do something more along the lines of annual gardening if this is a place I get to every week or two. I could grow a lot of stuff out there. Will raccoons and deer and th stuff like that swim? Yes, but it's very, very minimal compared to what other things will do. If I've got some ducks out there, they've got some shelter as well. I can put a little duck house out on the island, and, you know, I mean, it all depends on how often I'm going to be out there. But these are some other ways to create kind of longevity uh, and start working on things without being there to maintain them. And I, I think that... One of the biggest things that we do need to do, though, in spite of my story about, like, you know, multicolor car guy, and I'd love to hear from the comments section today in the show notes, how many of you know multicolor car guy or knew multicolor car, car guy when you were a teenager? Because I think there's a lot of them out there. Usually they have long hair and they talk like this, man, like one day, you know, that guy, right? So even in spite of the fact that multicolor car guy probably never completed his project, the one thing we can learn from him that is valuable, uh, he just didn't execute it properly usually, is design with the end in mind. So I do think it makes sense to look at this piece of property right from the very beginning and say, I see this property as being a place that 10 to 15 years from now or less that I'm going to want to live on permanently. 
and I'm going to want to have a, a reasonable house here, and I'm going to want it to be grid-tied with some backup, or I'm going to want it to be totally off-grid with it, or whatever it is you want it to be, or I want this to be a freaking mansion. Or I want this to be a very humble place, maybe uh, uh, what we call like a tiny house compound. So I'm going to do the tiny house thing, but I'm going to have four or five of them. I'm going to build them at home and bring them out here. Kind of a cool way to do things. You, you just realize you're unlimited with what you can do. But one thing I want to caution you with when it comes to earth structure homes, geodesic domes, uh, building your own structures and things like that, is if your, your, your plan is ever that you're going to sell a, a place like this, you need to be very careful with how much money you sink into it. Because the biggest way that people buy housing today and buy property today is through financing. And a lot of what I'm learning as I look for new homes is a lot of structures are difficult to get financing for. We found a beautiful house, a house I was happy to buy. It was about eight acres. Um, it was actually very close to where we used to live, but yet it was very rural. It was beautiful. It had a pond on it. The kitchen was gorgeous. It was Gorgeous cabinetry. I mean like high-end cabinetry. High-end granite countertops. Very efficient because it was a geodesic dome. A geodesic dome is a structure that if it's hit by a tornado is probably more likely to survive than anything else built out of wood. Um, it's also very, very uh, environmentally conscious. Very, very um, good from a cooling standpoint. The way that the house is laid out, it's actually more efficient to cool. You get a lot of space on a lower footprint. A lot of it's utiliz easily utilized, and they're beautiful. Um, when we looked at buying it, we started looking at getting financing on it, and it wasn't that FHA or, or conventional wouldn't do a loan against it. You couldn't get an appraiser to appraise the damn thing. In other words, they won't look at a 2,000-square-foot geodesic dome even though it's built exactly the same as a 2,000-foot square house down the road and appraise them as comparables. And if you look at an earthship, forget about getting financing on an earthship. Forget about getting financing on a dome home uh, or a, uh, what do you call it, an earth bag home or something like that. So either your plan is you're going to keep it or you're going to keep the cost of construction so low that if you ever do sell it, that you would be able to sell it to someone that could be able to buy it out of pocket or a personal loan or based on a loan on the land itself. You've got to be careful with these things um, when you come to building a lot of your own things, especially when you stay off grid. The good thing is you can get away from permits and zoning and a lot of other things like that. You can do composting toilets, sawdust toilets, all these things that will prevent you from having to go to the county or the city or the state and beg for permission to do shit with your own property. But if you ever want to divest yourself of that property, understand that a lot of the structural infrastructure that you've put in may be a loss. But there's ways to mitigate that. Let's say I've done the ha tiny house compound. So I build houses that can sit on a trailer. Just like if you've seen this, and you can build a really nice one for $10,000. And I build one that's kind of like it's where I sleep and where I do my work and kind of like my little living area. And then I build another one that's like kind of like the kitchen for a, a place to eat when using an outdoor kitchen is not practical, it's too cold or too hot. And then I build one that's more like my little entertainment one. And then I build one that's more like extra space for guests to sleep in. So I have four of them. And I bring them there and I set them up. And I even set them up semi-permanently, right? Well, let's say I decide to sell that land and I know I can't recoup the cost of the tiny houses. Well, guess what I can do? I can take them wherever I'm going next. I can keep the one that's the primary living quarters, sell off the other three individually. I can sell the land separately. So it gives me options. If I put it in an earth bag home, you're not moving that. You're talking about tons 
and tons and tons of material that it takes to build even a relatively small one. So I'm going to have to sell that to somebody that that's their dream so much that they're willing to buy it. And you'd think, well, why would I put all of this work into a property and then sell it? I don't know, because you get old and you can't maintain it anymore. Um, because you get a really great job offer across the country uh, and it turns out to be something that's going to change your financial life and your career life forever and you really want to do it um, because sometimes shit goes right and sometimes shit goes wrong as blunt as I can be. So whenever you're dealing with developing a property, you always have to do something that our government's not good about doing with all of their programs, have an exit strategy going in. Heard a lot about that in the war, right? What's our exit strategy from Iraq? What's our exit strategy from a failed health care reform? What's our exit strategy from a failed Social Security reform? And I can just go on and on and on, but I don't want to go into politics. I'm just saying, like, the government never sets up an exit strategy for a government program. They never say, well, what if it doesn't work? What will we do? How will we, how will we extricate ourselves from a situation? And you end up with Greece. Well, what happens on a big scale happens on a small scale. So you do have to think about what's my exit strategy from this property. And every time you put money into that property, you either need to be thinking about how do I mitigate the loss, avoid the loss, or accept the loss. So understand if you put an earth ship in, right, you can get, you can say it's the whole place now is worth $130,000. And it might be worth twice that, really. And there might be plenty of people that want to buy it. But unless they have the ability to whip out a checkbook and write, to homestead creator, $130,000 and no $100 and sign it and give you that check and that check actually clears, where are they going to get the money to buy it? So a lot of these creative alternative structures right, get into financing issues. And with the future of the economy, that ain't going to get better. It's going to get worse. So... I'm not saying not to do these things. I'm just saying don't think that like, well, I can always sell it. You, you can always sell anything. But what's, you know, like we looked at another house and there's no financing issues at all. A little bit more complicated financing because the land is zoned agricultural. A little bit more income documentation and all. But the people want to either sell it with five acres, which turns it into a narrow strip and ruins the land at, at one price, or sell it for 300000 which is above what we're willing to pay for it. Uh, with 10 acres, and it's, it's it's a beautiful place, irrigated pasture, metal roof, granite, I mean, and very, very well-designed home, very, very fuel, uh, energy-efficient home. It's pretty freaking awesome, and it's only an hour away from where my wife's family is. And it's it's like in the middle of nowhere, yet close, and you can get DSL. So I'm like, we'll deal on this property, and they don't want to come down at all on the property with the 10 acres. And they're like, it's worth that. Well, you've been trying to sell it for 411 days. Nobody ain't bought it yet. So it ain't worth that. Well, that's what we have put into it. Not my problem. It's not my problem what a seller has into a property. And you need to think about that as you're developing a property. What you put into it is not necessarily what you're going to be able to get out of it because we're talking about something that's so expensive, very few buyers have the money. So use that to moderate what you're doing. And, and then let's, let's finish up a little bit more and kick uh, multicolor car guy a little bit more. Don't kid yourself about what can be done or what will be done, what you'll actually be able to do. It's very easy to look at a piece of property and say, well, I can do this, I can do that, I can do this. I can come in here and, and you know, put in a solar array. You got to think within your means. So you have to think, again, let's start with the end in mind and work backwards, and then let's put the critical infrastructure in with the end in mind. So I don't put a pond in the place that actually would have been the place to put a house, 
Right? Let's try to put that pond on a higher piece of the property if the catchment's there. If I have pond up on the highest elevation of my property, I can gravity feed irrigation out of it. I don't need a pump. I don't need electricity. What's that worth? What would it be worth to have a quarter acre pond? Let's, let me, let me, I'm going to pause the recorder and do a little calculation here and come back and give you a number. Now let, let's forget the quarter acre. Let's do just a simple little stock pond uh a simple little pond like we'd put in as like a stock tank or something like that. 50 feet wide, 100 feet in length with an average depth of 8 feet. 300,000 gallons of water. What is 300,000 gallons of water with gravity feed to your entire property worth versus the cost of having an excavator dig you a hole that's roughly 50 by 100 by 8 feet? And using all of the earth as impoundment. You have zero building cost. The only thing you need to do is make sure you put some sort of pipe in there so you can let the water out to the lower levels. What's that worth? So we need to think when we're thinking about the end in mind is how do we put the, the minimal cost in for the maximum extraction out? Water is a huge way that we can do that. But we don't need to kid ourselves about, well, one day I'm going to put a pond in. Really? Where? What's it going to cost? How much is it going to cost? What type of equipment is going to do it? Is the soil right for it? You know, one of the biggest friends you have in this, Google uh, Maps with a satellite view. If you pull up the area around where you're at and there's like ponds everywhere, then you know building ponds is not only possible, but relatively easy to do. If you don't see many ponds around the area you're looking in, hmm, maybe it's a soil issue. Maybe you're going to have to bring in liner material. That changes everything. So hopefully this has given you like, I haven't like stepped on your dream too much. Hopefully I've actually encouraged it, but it's given you a little bit of temperance so that you know going forward what to look at because it's, it's something that like when it's done, it's done. You go by five acres of land, you're pretty committed. Unloading it right now is not the easiest thing to do. And as you spend two or three years working on it, you're going to become more and more emotionally attached to it. And the, the other big thing is if you ever do have to sell a piece of land, or a house or anything, you really have to let go of all of your emotions. There's so many people out there right now that go, I can't sell my house, I can't sell my piece of land. Uh, you can, you're just stupid and you think it's worth more than it is because you're emotionally attached to it. And if you're underwater on it, well, you're kind of stuck. So now, now you can't sell. But if you're not underwater, right, and a lot, you know, a lot of times you look, I've been looking at properties lately and you go, I can see what they mortgaged it for, when they mortgaged it, what kind of loan they got, you get all that information from your realtor. You stick that into an amortization table, and you go, well, this person owes 160 on this property. I've offered them 190 and they won't sell. They've been asking 210 for a year. Nobody will buy it. They're stupid. They're stupid. That's the answer. They're stupid. If they really want to sell, they're stupid. They're not going to get what they're asking. They're not serious about selling. We tried to buy one house. I, I think I told you guys what happened to that property. It was another eight-acre property. It was Perfect as far as I was concerned. My wife liked the house, but it was a little small. I liked that it. it was a little small, more energy efficient. It had all types of infrastructure built in. We gave a full price offer. They said, uh, we don't want to close till January 1st. That's way too long for me to screw around with a seller. And you know this day and age, when you go to buy a house, when it actually comes down, home inspections and stuff like that, there's going to be things the lender's going to require, and a seller that's like, that's not going to want to do it, and the deal's going to fall apart. So it wasn't even that the timeline didn't work. It was just unreasonable and dealing with unreasonable people, right? So when you're trying to sell, this is kind of like wrapping up today. When you're trying to sell property, don't be stupid. Don't think, well, it's worth X. If it was worth X and you put up a sign that said for sale for X in a reasonable amount of time, somebody's going to come give you X for it. If nobody will give you X for it, it's not worth that. That's how we got into this mess, by the way. 
by banks saying this mortgage that's that's due to me is worth X instead of marking it to market. What can I actually sell it for? Don't do that to yourself as a seller on property. But there you go, guys. And I, I'll tell you that going forward, as we find our permanent new home, this will be our plan for Plan B. This is the way we're we're going to do this as well. Um, and I think it makes a lot of sense. And I think it gives you things like hunting property, deer property, you know, recreational property on top of all of it. And it can be a lot of fun. It can be a hobby. And you can put all of that into something that's not quite as long, you know, doesn't have quite the longevity, or you can put it into something like this that would be something that could be handed down to a grandchild or a great-grandchild. And with that, this has been Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. There's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess And we follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way Nobody up there cares, they're living for today.